Hello and welcome to PFASology with me, Rachel London. PFASology is a podcast where we interview researchers about per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, better known as PFAS. In the last two decades, there has been increasing attention on these substances from scientists, NGO and government. Whilst useful, these chemicals have now become widespread contaminants found in most environments and animals on this planet. However, many scientists across the world are working on this problem, including a group of early stage researchers or ESRs in the project Perforce 3. Those of us on this show are all researching and learning about these compounds. On the show, we're going to talk to you about PFAS, some of the research going on at the moment, and some of the ESRs working on this problem. Each episode, we're going to look at one of the aspects being investigated and share what we are learning about PFAS. Today, we are going to the northernmost edges of our world, to the frozen wilderness of the Arctic. In deep midwinter, the sun may not come up for many days, and during this dark season, the intake of vitamin D becomes crucial for the good health of the local population. From January to March, a traditional Norwegian dish made out of boiled cod, cod liver, hard roe, and fresh cod liver oil luckily provides a good supplement of vitamin D. Unfortunately, this dish can now also provide exposure to high levels of persistent organic pollutants, including PFAS. However, where is this PFAS coming from? The Arctic is not well known for its factories. PFAS contamination is not limited to the area in which these chemicals were produced. PFAS are produced in industrial regions, mostly, before being spread all over the world and also into the food and the blood of the Arctic peoples. In this episode, I will be talking to Lara Cioni about PFAS in our blood. Lara is one of the early stage researchers within Perforce 3 project and is working at NILU, the Norwegian Institute for Air Research, based in Tromsø in the Arctic. Hello, Lara, and thank you for joining the podcast. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me here. You're joining from the Arctic today, which is super exciting. Uh, you probably, I'm probably most jealous of where you are. I came to visit you in October and it was pretty amazing. So uh, how is it up there at the moment? Dark and cold, I reckon? Yes, and it's been quite a shock to be here in the last couple of days because I was just uh, on my holidays in Italy and it was very sunny, over 15 degrees, while here I arrived on Sunday yet it was covered in snow, minus 10 degrees, all dark. So I need to get adjusted again to it, but it's a very special place. I'm glad you come to visit. Yeah, it was incredible. So Lara organized possibly the best week of my adult life. It was incredible. We went up mountains. We saw the Northern Lights. It was amazing. Yeah, you're very lucky to live in such a beautiful world, even if it's uh, just for your research. Yeah. And how do you find going from Italy, because you are Italian, to the farthest edges of Norway? Yeah, so it's quite exciting because it's uh, very different. Here we have three months of complete darkness, so it's exciting, but I must say also uh, very hard to adjust at the same time. During the darkness, I feel very tired at some times of the days, and then maybe I get energy before going to bed. But I must say that actually 
I was not expecting this, but I found uh, harder the summer compared to the winter because during the summer is day the whole time, but it doesn't get warm. It just stays around 15 degrees. That is the temperatures that we get uh, during the winter where I'm from. So I would not call that summer at all. Right. So following on from our story at the beginning of this podcast, how are PFAS getting to the Arctic? First of all, PFAS are persistent chemicals. And this is a property that comes from the carbon-fluorine bond that characterizes the PFAS chemical structure. This uh, carbon-fluorine bond is the strongest bond in organic chemistry, and it makes PFAS very hard to break down. Not all PFAS are equally persistent. Some PFAS, the ones that we call precursors, can be transformed more easily once they are released to the environment. However, they are still considered problematic from a persistent point of view because they can be transformed into other PFAS that are then staying in the environment for many years. And then we know that PFAS are very mobile and can be transported for long distances through the oceans and the atmospheres. So the high persistence combined with the capability of many PFAS to undergo long-range transport gives them the opportunity to reach remote areas far from the production sites. And this is uh, how they also get to the Arctic. Now, once PFAS is in the Arctic, how does PFAS then get into the blood of the people living there? Well, in the Arctic, but uh, also everywhere else, once the environment is contaminated with PFAS, this pollution can easily reach the food and water supply. In this way, we can easily get exposed to these chemicals through the diet. For example, in the Norwegian uh, population, high levels of PFAS and long-chain PFAS in the blood have been associated with high consumption of fish. And this is due to the fact that these uh, PFAS are the ones with the higher tendency to accumulate in marine life. Diet is considered to be the main pathway of exposure for the PFAS that we know, but this is not the only way we can come in contact with these chemicals. We can also get exposed to PFAS through dust inhalation in our homes, and also through contact with consumer products like uh, cosmetics that uh, contain PFAS, for example. Okay, so we are exposed to PFAS through our diet, through dust, through consumer products like cosmetics. And once it's in our bodies, does it stay there for a long time? Yes, so once uh, taken up by our body, some PFAS are so persistent that it's very hard to eliminate them. To give you an idea, we know that some PFAS can stay in our bodies for many years and can accumulate in our blood and blood-rich organs. And as a result of this accumulation, blood samples become very valuable to study exposure to these substances. If we take blood samples from people and analyze them for PFAS, we can understand what the overall exposure to this substance is, no matter what the source is. And we call this internal exposure, and this accounts for the total of all the pathways that uh, I was mentioning. How are you getting the blood samples for your research? Well, luckily, I don't have to take uh, the blood from people myself, because I'm very scared by needles and blood. I'm getting the samples from a biobank that is stored samples donated by people that took part in the Trumso study. This is a large study about uh, the Trumso population. And the samples that I have access to are very precious because uh, these have been stored for many years. The oldest one have been collected in 1986 and the most recent ones are from 2015. 
This is an incredible resource to have access to. So I'm guessing you can see how the PFAS levels are changing over that time. Yes, exactly. And these samples cover a time frame that uh, is very interesting for PFAS. Their production started in the 40s and peaked in uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s. And since the early 2000s, PFAS production has been changing a lot. The biggest PFOS manufacturer voluntarily stopped the PFOS production in 2002. And in 2009, PFOS production was restricted under the Stockholm Convention for Persistent Organic Pollutants. New substances have been introduced to replace PFOS, and the same has been happening for other legacy PFAS. I think it is interesting to see how these changes are affecting the levels of PFAS that we see in human blood. Even if PFAS have not been produced in huge amounts, we still can find PFAS in almost every person on the planet. Including the people in the Arctic, like at the beginning of this podcast. And how are you measuring PFAS in the blood? We will use a combination of analytical techniques. First of all, we will carry EOF measurements. And uh, what do you mean by EOF? It stands for extractable organic fluorine. This technique provides an estimate of the total amount of PFAS by converting all of them to fluoride. That is uh, easy to measure. And then we will compare these uh, measurements with the analysis of well-known PFAS. And as a result, we will try to understand how large the portion of unknown PFAS in the blood is. And after this, we will try to investigate the unknown PFAS portion using a third tool. That is a screening technique called the top assay to look for the presence of oxidizable precursors. And what do you mean when you say precursor? And also, why are you looking for them? Yes, so these are a group of uh, PFAS that are of concern for our health because they can be converted by our metabolism to PFAS that we already know to be toxic. However, it is a class of PFAS that is still not well studied in human blood, so we know very little about their possible impact on human health. And you were saying uh, that you will measure them using a top assay. Can you explain how that works? Yes, so the idea of this method is to convert precursors for which we do not have standards or that we do not know at all to PFAS that we know very well and that we can easily measure with the currently available methodologies. The advantage of this method is that we can look for more PFAS at the same time without needing any additional instrumentation. So it's uh, quite a valuable tool. Now you've gathered all this data about PFAS levels in blood. How are you going to use this data? Well, when the people involved in the Tromso study donated their blood, they also answered a lot of questions that can be very useful to understand more about uh, PFAS human exposure. For example, they provided demographic data like their sex and their age, And this allows us to understand how PFAS levels are changing depending on these factors. And are there differences in PFAS exposure between men and women? Yes, men uh, usually have higher PFAS concentrations than women. This is due to the fact that women are eliminating PFAS faster thanks to menstruation, but also through pregnancies. What about different age groups? 
So in general, older people have higher PFAS levels than the younger ones due to the fact that the PFAS that are found in the blood until now are very persistent and difficult to eliminate from our bodies and so can accumulate over time. Right, and you've done age and sex. What other information are you going to receive from participants of this study? We will also receive uh, their food frequency questionnaires that includes several questions on their dietary habits of the participants. As diet is considered the main route of exposure to many PFAS, we want to see if there are relationships between the levels of PFAS that we will measure in the blood and the consumption of certain food categories. I find this very interesting for the newest PFAS and I hope I can help to understand where the exposure to these new substances is coming from. In your project, you are focusing on these new PFAS compounds. Why is it important that we are looking into these new PFAS in the blood? Well, PFAS are a group of chemicals that includes uh, more than 4,000 different substances. However, in most uh, studies in human blood, only around 1% of these chemicals is analyzed. So the majority of PFAS is still uh, overlooked. Due to this lack of knowledge, the total exposure to these chemicals could be underestimated. And this is a big uh, health concern because we could be exposed to PFAS for which we don't have any information about the potential toxic effects. Therefore, I think it's very important to investigate uh, these overlooked PFAS because we need to understand what the full extent of PFAS exposure is. And then this will allow us to decide which PFAS should be prioritized in the studies to investigate their potential adverse health effects. Thank you, Laura Cioni. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Rachel. I hope to see you soon as well. Thank you, Laura, for a great interview. I really enjoyed recording this session and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. In this interview, Laura told us about PFAS levels in our blood, techniques she's using to measure PFAS levels, the impact of sex, age and diet on these levels within us, and why it's important we're looking into such matters. Next episode, Joost will be speaking to Odney on PFAS uptake through the skin. So earlier in this interview, Lara mentioned cosmetics as a potential exposure pathway. So if you want to hear a bit more about dermal uptake, feel free to check out episode five. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Spotify, Twitter, or ResearchGate, or visit Perforce Free website at perforce3-itn.eu. That's www.perforce3-itn.eu. We would also love any feedback you might have for us about this podcast. We are researchers, not podcast people. So any feedback you have on how we could improve would be great. Feel free to message us on Twitter or rate us on Spotify.